morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Wonderful. I'm so glad. It's good to see you here as we gather in the warmth of community and one another's presence and the presence of God. I'm glad that you're here, whether you're worshiping with us online or here in person. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. All right, before we jump into the teaching, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Revolution Kids. We're really glad you're here. Yeah. I've heard you got some new teachers up there this morning, so go easy on them, okay? Don't scare them off. Okay, love you. (laughs) All right, we're continuing this morning in our teaching series for the new year. Simply living like Jesus, kind of trying to focus ourselves to simplify. If you could have one goal in the new year of all of the things the world tries to tell us make us worthy or valuable, of all the things that we could accomplish and do and become, what if as a community of faith we made our goal for the new year simple? To live like Jesus. To live and to love like Jesus. And how do we do this? Well, by valuing what Jesus valued and by loving who Jesus loved. And so each week we've been looking at the Gospels and and looking at different values that it's clear that Jesus had and how he lived his life. The first we looked at was friendship. Friendship with God, friendship with the family of God, the family of faith, and friendship with the forgotten or the marginalized. And we kind of thought about who might fit into that category in our world today. The overlooked, the forgotten, the poor, the marginalized. That song, Abide, has kind of become a theme song for us. Teach us to abide. To abide in that friendship with God in the presence of one another so that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love everyone. And then last week, what was the value? Do you remember? food, and humility, and the dignity of all people. I just kind of sandwiched it in there. Ah, but um, yep. Um, yes, the value of food. So we did friendship and food, and we see Jesus breaking bread and sharing table fellowship with everybody, including people he really shouldn't have been, according to the religious leaders, and that modeled for us these values of his downward mobility, his, his humility, And also to see the dignity and worth of all people, regardless of who they are or how the world saw them. So I want to pause just for a moment and open us in prayer. Um, I feel it in my own spirit of just a spirit of, of heaviness over the past couple of weeks of just things that have happened across our, our nation that have reminded me that the world does not value the dignity and worth of all people. We've had more gun violence, two mass shootings, more depending on how you count them. Had people die at the hands of police. Past couple of weeks, those of you that have gone out and homeless with our homeless Louisville group to serve our houseless neighbors have told me it's been two really hard weeks of some of the people that you have met and encountered who needed incredible medical care of things that could have been avoided if they had just had basic access maybe to things that they needed like food and shelter and medical care and in the state that you met these friends in were almost beyond help 
And there was a heaviness as I, as I talked to some of you this morning in my own spirit that was a reminder that the world does not follow the values of Jesus. Of these values of humility and dignity and friendship with the forgotten. Friends, following the values of Jesus in a world that doesn't is hard. It's countercultural. And sometimes it can even break our hearts and fill us with, with fear. And so I want to remember the words of Jesus who said to his disciples, if you live this way, it's going to be hard. It's not going to make sense to anyone else in this world. It's going to even be foolish. It may even be dangerous. But what does he say in the Gospel of John? But take heart, for I am with you, and I have overcome the world. So before we move on to our next value, that is, let me tell you, no less popular than the first couple we've covered, I just want to pause and pray. So would you join me? Almighty God, there are times and there are seasons and days when it just feels like too much. With the weight of the world, that how it works and how it operates and how it serves some, but forgets and rolls over a whole lot. God, as we stand in the gap and as we try to have eyes to see the inbreaking kingdom and to follow your way, the way to the kingdom that is so opposite and upside down from how our world operates. God, my prayer is simple this morning. Would you give us courage? In the moments of heartbreak, in the moments of fear, in the moments of overwhelm, would your Holy Spirit be poured out on us and give us courage to not grow weary of doing good, to continue the things that you have taught us, your values, your love, your friendship, your humility. And would you also give us just enough encouragement that we need to keep going, to remind us, to assure us that this actually is the way to truth and to life and to the kingdom that is around us. And as we, as we sit or as we stand and as we pray in solidarity with those who are hurting by this world and the systems at work, would you allow your love to shine through us to be a source of comfort and encouragement to all of our friends around us, that there is something better than what we experience some days here. So God, we thank you for, for your promises, and we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your presence that truly keeps us going. So come, Holy Spirit, come now, we pray. Speak to our hearts this morning as we continue with courage and hope and bravery to follow the values of Jesus. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning, we are going to look at the next value, if you will, of Jesus as radical generosity. The generosity of God, who then calls us into the same spirit and lifestyle of generosity. And you're like, wait a second, this is not September or October. When Rachel talks about stewardship, 
I've been hoodwinked. I've been duped. It's too late now. Oh, someone's leaving. No, <laughs> it's too late now. Well, you could still leave, but the coffee's warm. It's going to be fun. We're going to talk about generosity. No less sort of uh, popular by our world standards that teaches us, that trains us to earn and to, to sort of uh, collect and hoard and that our worth is found in our collections and our possessions and our sort of upward mobility, right, as we talked about last week. Of course, the value of downward mobility of Christ is also going to be applied to our spirit of generosity. And so this really just builds on itself as we go. But to, to sort of I know I said that we're going to be looking at the Gospels each week, but I'm kind of switching it up a bit. I'm going to teach on a passage of Scripture I've never taught on when it comes to generosity. So that should be fun, you know, because you've heard a lot of them. And at the end of this, if you say, I've heard her say all of these things before, (laughs) that might be true. (laughs) Because we need these reminders pretty often, that this is a hard value of being transformed out of the ways of the world that operates on kind of scarcity and greed and fear and collecting and earning, do you hear me? And instead, a spirit of openness and generosity and abundance of the kingdom of God, that there's always enough to go around. I don't know about you, but I have not yet, yet, I have not yet arrived there in that full spirit of openness And so we need to hear these things often, maybe, and even repetitively. And so just maybe that's my little warning as we begin. But the passage that we're going to look at comes from 2 Corinthians 8. And as I said, I've never taught on this before when it comes to generosity. And so it might feel just a little bit more like a Bible study this morning. And that's okay. (laughs) So if you have your Bible or your phone, if you want to pull up, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. And I'm going to kind of move through it one chunk at a time. I have taught on 2 Corinthians 9 before, but I've backed it up a little bit, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8. But before we do that, as in any good Bible study, you'd spend a few moments, a few good moments, talking about the context and what we're about to open ourselves up to, where we find ourselves in the story of Scripture. And so what I want you to know, there's two things that we're going to set this up with context, kind of what's going on in the church in Corinth right now. And then two, why, Paul talks a whole lot about this collection among a lot of churches, but it seems to be really, really important to him here. And I just simply want to answer the question, why? Why, Paul, are you so concerned about this, quote, collection? Okay, so those are the two things. What's going on in Corinth and this collection? Um, so we have two letters in our canon of Scripture, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that we know are written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Most scholars, though, believe that this, these aren't the only two letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. In fact, based on conversations and some you know, conversations within these letters, some references that Paul makes to, to earlier events, most scholars believe that he wrote five letters to the church in Corinth. The first one was lost, and in 1 Corinthians 5, he references a previous letter that he wrote to this church. So the first letter was lost. The second letter is what we see as 1 Corinthians today. The third letter was also lost. uh, And we know this because somewhere between the second and third letter that he wrote this church, uh, apparently there was a pretty uh, pretty big, I don't know what you would call it, 
reprimand. reprimand there, was a, there was a rift. Something happened between the second and third letter uh, that really upset Paul. He had promised to come and visit them, but instead of going to visit them, he sends them a third letter, which is filled with honest and frank speech. A reprimand, if you will. We're not exactly sure what happened, but it seems to that someone in the community of the Corinthian church, like, uh, confronted Paul, maybe went so far as, like, verbally assault him, and no one else in the community stood up in defense of Paul. And so he leaves. Paul leaves the community. He says he's going to come back and visit, but he doesn't. Maybe bruised ego, maybe feelings hurt, maybe there's truth in what Paul says of of he was wronged and no one in the community came to his help or defense. And so he sends this third letter, which is unfortunately lost, that scholars believe. It has this frank and honest speech. And so then the fourth letter is 2 Corinthians 1 through 9, and the fifth letter is, as you can see, chapters 10 through 13. So we're finding Paul uh, almost to the end of this fourth letter. And there's a couple of times in 2 Corinthians verses 1 through 9 when he references this episode <laughs> and this uh, need for discipline, this need for reconciliation, and also this, this, uh, this frank speech. We find Paul here somewhere in the middle of his fourth letter. Meanwhile, while all this has happened, his buddy Titus, who he had traveled with, he goes on to the church in Macedonia and has like incredible success. Incredible success, notably, in raising money for the collection. This is a collection, apparently, that they were going to send back to the church in Jerusalem for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That's how Paul talks about it. And you know how he had so much success? Is that he actually goes to Macedonia, which is not too far away, and he says, you should see what's going on in in Corinth in a positive way. They are so generous. They, are, they are, have zeal and excitement about, about this mission and about raising this money. And he's gotten the Macedonians so excited that they are preparing with Titus to go and take their own offering to the Corinthians to, to present it to them and Paul and say, we're in this with you. Uh-oh, and it's going to be a little awkward because the Corinthians and Paul are like, not okay right now. And in fact, their zeal that they had originally had in this collection, they don't have anymore. What began in this spirit of generosity, it's kind of based on this rift and based on this letter of frank speech, it's kind of, it's kind of fizzled. And so Titus is about to walk into a really awkward situation, and Paul knows this. And so he writes this letter, this fourth letter, kind of with some hopes of restoring this tense relationship between him and the Corinthian church, also so that there can be a spirit of reconciliation among the one who wronged him, but also to appeal to them again to join with him in this collection for Jerusalem. I have to admit, I learned something new this week. I always thought every time we heard Paul in all of these different letters talk about this collection and raising money, I always thought it was just for his own, like, missionary ventures. Like, join with me. I'm spreading the gospel. I'm planting these new churches, and you'll be partners. In Philippians, I think, he talks about being partners with him in the gospel. 
And I just always thought it was like to feed and house Paul <laughs> or to like buy his boat trip to, to go to the next place. I'm, I'm, I learned something new to th- this week. It might have been some of that, but also specifically in so many of these letters to the Gentile churches, when he writes, when he writes about this collection, what he's talking about is a collection to send back to the church in Jerusalem to serve the poor there among the saints in the Jerusalem church. He calls it, let's see, he, he encouraged it throughout so many of his letters. He might phrase it as remember them or keep them in mind. He refers to this collection of money or a ministry, support and distribu- distribution. He refers to it as a gift. And each time scholars know what he's talking about is this collection for the church in Jerusalem. So why? Here's my second point. Why? Why is this so important to Paul? Quick, a, a quick review. The Jerusalem Council when the pillars of the church meet to discover what Paul and what Peter has also observed, but Paul has been doing, going in and spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. If you remember this, we've talked about this a few times. And what they've discovered is like, okay, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them, but like, now what are we going to do? Are we allowed to eat with them? These are Jewish believers, Jewish in Jerusalem, pillars of the Jewish Christian community. And they're saying, but can we eat with them? Like, are they, are they supposed to be circumcised? Do they have to take on the full law to be like legit members of our family of God? And this is a really big deal. And so they have a council. <laughs> they have a committee meeting. The first church council, and they try to hash it out. They try to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to be a part of one church? And Peter, Jewish pillar Peter, says, look, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. Remember, he went to that guy Cornelius's house. He received a vision, a really weird vision, and it told him to go. And these servants came and were like, hey, we need you to come with us. And he went with them, and he met Cornelius, this Roman centurion, this Gentile. And he saw the Holy Spirit poured out on all these Gentiles that were gathered there, just like what had happened to him and the other disciples, where we read about it in Acts. Acts 2, Acts 1 and 2. And he's like, he's floored. He's blown away. And so now he goes before this council and and he bears witness. And he says, the spirit didn't show any partiality, therefore we shouldn't either. And he says there in Acts, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I don't remember who it is. Does someone hear Bible trivia? There's someone like who's in question about like he's prepared as a Gentile adult to be circumcised. And like that's like the, the example on the table. <laughs> so he talks about why are you putting, like, by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples, like why are, why are you going to make them do that? That's not necessary. And so what they decide is this. Okay, we are a part of one church. So Paul and Barnabas are going to go, and they are going to 
They're going to serve the Gentile believers. They're going to plant churches, and they're going to spread the gospel there. And then Peter and other Jewish pillars there in Jerusalem, they're going to, they're going to focus on the Jewish believers. But we're, we're going to remember this one thing, because we are one church and we share this mission. He says, in all your adventures and all of your, just remember the poor. That's what the ultimate decision at the Jerusalem council is. Just remember the poor. And so Paul is excited. They've, ex- they've extended the right hand of fellowship. They recognize that faith and the spirit is the same. And he's going and he's just committed. He's determined that in all of these Gentile churches he plants, they are going to have this collection that's going to be symbolic of being a part of this one church with this one mission, remember the poor. And they're gonna send that collection back to Jerusalem to reinforce this relationship, to serve the poor among the Jerusalem church. I'd like to believe and also think that among their community churches, they're also doing this work, but Paul is fired up and he's excited and everywhere he goes, this is gonna become the symbolic collection of this one church No distinction, Jew and Gentile, male or female, slave or free, because we're united in this mission together to remember the poor. With me? That's the one mission. Okay, so let's, we're going to turn to scripture now. 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to read the first couple of verses. There you go, remember the poor. And according to this scholar, it's a symbolic act which the Gentile churches as donors and the Jerusalem believers as recipients acknowledge that they belong to one another in Christ. They belong to each other. They are one church. All right, 2 Corinthians 8. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the church, the churches of Macedonia, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So pausing here, he's holding up the church in Macedonia Macedonia as an exemplar. Like, listen to what they've been doing. And there are people that are struggling there. They are struggling from affliction, from poverty too, and yet there's been an abundance of joy and a spirit of generosity Now, this is a key sort of teaching technique that was used in the ancient world of holding something up as an exemplar to say, mimic this, and not to shame them, not to be like, you know, we think of peer pressure today and and not a healthy technique. It wasn't like that. It was used to inspire and to encourage. So he wants to encourage them of listen to what's happening in the Macedonian church, the spirit of generosity. And he continues, Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command. He's kind of trying to ease it up here. Remember, he's trying to restore the relationship. But by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's challenging them here almost to like a personal reflection, a little test 
Do some examination and some reflection. Test your own spirit of generosity and of love toward your neighbor. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment that this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Last one, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He bases it on the generosity and humility that we see in Christ. And this is an act of grace. That's what he keeps saying throughout it. I think there's like this whole chapter, there's like 20 references to grace. And how this is an act of grace, even in collecting and sending to the poor. It's reflective of the grace that we see shown in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in God's act of grace and generosity for us and for them first. He's referencing there, we talked about it last week, Philippians 2, Jesus becoming poor, humbling himself, emptying himself, this move of of downward mobility so that we might become rich in the kingdom of God, so that we might have all that we need, so that we might have plenty and abundance and eternal life, the super abundant love and grace that we find there. In his book, uh, Larry Stess, he says this, Jesus set aside his position and his glory of heaven. He gave up his job in the woodshop and left his home in Nazareth. He gave everything he had, his time, his money, his energy, his life, to make God's generous love known on earth. This is why we experience God's love at a deep and personal level when we look upon the cross of Christ and realize Jesus laid down his life for the salvation of the world. There at the end, verses 10 through 12, he he asks them again to test your spirit, to remember how you started this well a year ago, and even desired to give and to grow in generosity a year ago. And he encourages them, because of the grace of Jesus Christ that's been given to you, pick it up again. Keep going. Remember who you are. Remember the gifts that have been given to you and trust this abundant nature of the kingdom that if there's a time when you are lacking, the abundance and generosity of others will supply your needs. This idea of this sort of reciprocity of if you give from what you have and even don't have, apparently the Macedonians were giving above and beyond. If you give in faith, trusting in God that God will provide and in your moment of need from the abundance of others, it'll all work out. It'll all work out. Paul is echoing some truths about generosity that we already know. He's echoing some key truths about generosity. That we were created in the image of of a generous God. That we see Jesus reveal this generous God to us through his love and grace and sacrifice. 
And then generosity increases our capacity to do good together. That's that reciprocal nature that I was, that I was talking about. When the Corinthians give when they have excess or not, and in your moment of need, it will be provided. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, that their abundance may supply your need. And another truth, that there is always more. The generosity for the Macedonians to give what they have, and even in their time of affliction and in poverty, there's always enough, there's always fairness, there can always be more. And this kind of uh, image of what generosity can be like in the kingdom of God. If it all belongs to God anyways, when we offer it back, it can be blessed and multiplied and shared. There's always more, there's always enough. That's hard for our American ears to hear. We are like, yeah, but I budget and I have bills and I have demands and that is all true. But there's this sense that if we, if we trust the kingdom that we are members of, as we offer what we have, no matter the amount, it's a place of our heart. If we operate not in the way that the world works, of this sort of like greed and self-sufficiency, and I can do it, and it's all up to me, and this scarcity mentality that leads us to want to keep and to hoard and to doomsday prep, if we can be just sort of drawn a little bit more to this place of, of trust and surrender and generosity, what we find is a place of freedom in the superabundant kingdom of God, that there actually is enough to go around even for you and even for me. And there's a couple of special ones that Larry Stess adds to this list in his own book. In that position of seeing generosity this way, you also find that generosity is contagious and it is fun and it creates this supernatural, immeasurable results. I know some of you have experienced this to be true in your own lives. I'm a part of this mom's group online. It's moms in Louisville and Southern Indiana. And I was amazed by the generosity I saw this past week where one mom is a business owner that lots of the women support, but she shared about how much that she was struggling and she had a rental car, or she had, a, she had leased a car that had been totaled. They were out, this like $20,000 they had put on this. It was, just, it was just really tight. They make too much to actually get any assistance, and they were struggling to pay the light bill. And all at once, I saw all these moms say, well, I don't have much, but put your Venmo up. I can send five bucks. And after like an hour, 75 people had commented on this post saying, I got you. I sent what I could. I sent what I could. It was just a dollar, but I sent what I could. And who knows how much it was multiplied of what people sent this young mom who said, I'm struggling. To be a part of that, that kind of generosity is contagious and it's fun. And you see that when you're in this together, there's enough together. I know some of you heard me say this this week and, and you've heard it before. There is enough in the world for human need. There is not enough for human greed. Sometimes the world bumps into these divine truths. In the superabundant kingdom of God where you and I live, there is enough to go around for you and for me and for our forgotten friends. 
And I'm so grateful to serve a church that has that spirit of generosity, that's, that's willing to seek out this radical nature and, and generosity of Christ. It's not always easy. We have to unlearn some things by how the world operates. But, but when we get there, when we experience it, we see that that position is a place of freedom and joy to partner together, to accomplish more together than we could have alone. Church, I want you to know that just last year in 2022, we as Revolution Church, we collected for things like flood relief to Eastern Kentucky. We collected money for tornado relief to Western Kentucky. We collected money to buy Christmas gifts for 10 students at Grace Kids and had enough left over that we sent them a year-end gift to bless their ministry in the new year. We supported our GO missionaries, including Juan, who does community development, and and Raphael, who's been planting churches. We kept that commitment. We collected money for our helping hand and benevolence funds that when people call me during the week, there's a, it might not look like much, but man, does it multiply and sustain throughout the year. That we were able to call or help when people call and have emergent needs, like house fires, and we can respond we collected for congregation missions that supported things like our flood buckets, our our Fourth Avenue lunches. We packed hygiene kits for homeless Louisville. That's what we did, like, officially on the books of the budget of Revolution Church. And that was $18,000. Can we grow and do more? Absolutely. But is that not something to reflect and say, Look at the spirit of generosity at work in this place. And that's not even to count the many of you who on a regular basis make burritos for burrito riders or for vans to take out or who go and, and donate directly or donate your, your time and your clothes and, and other supplies for Homeless Louisville. That's not to count the items donated to, to JAM, Area Ministries, J-Town Area Ministries, or those of you that donated and served meals at the Wesley Foundation or for Celebrate Recovery, week in and week out, you are living this spirit of generosity. On Wednesday night, we had over 40 people in this space at Celebrate Recovery, breaking bread and worshiping and fellowshipping and finding joy and freedom in community. A newcomer donating dinner, and I hear it was like loaves and fish. Those two pots of chili, they were enough. They were enough. When we live this value and offer what we have and surrender it to God, it can be blessed and multiplied and distributed to do just immeasurable good that we can never really, I can't count. (laughs) I can't put a number to it. And in the spirit of Paul, I hear him giving us an opportunity to test our faith this morning and our love for our neighbor, to say, yes, there is a spirit of generosity here. Absolutely, we are growing. But can we offer more? Yes. Yes, I think we can. Back in October, when we did do our stewardship campaign, many of you responded. In fact, we had more pledges than we've had Since I've been doing this official stewardship campaign, more number of pledges. We had more new first-time recurring givers than we've ever had. 
And we also had quite a few of you who said, I'm going to increase my gift and start the year in faith that there's going to be enough and that God's at work in this place and we're going to partner together to join God in the revolution of transforming lives here through teaching and serving. And so many of you increased your recurring gift from last year. I was blown away. And then the Holy Spirit took over at that charge conference and a budget that the finance team had prepared that reflected our our giving year to date and what we had projected and where we would end. You said, no, I don't think we need to make any cuts. I think we can make it. And let's try it for a year. And y'all took over and it was great. And so many people shared and so many people said, yes, we believe in what God is doing here and the spirit of generosity that is growing here. And so as we start the year, I want to remind you of that. I want to celebrate that with you. I want to remind you of the commitments that you made. And I also want to invite you to join with us. There is so much that I, we probably don't even know that this church does in terms of remembering the poor. Remembering the poor that are among us, just like we see Paul so passionate about in his letters. And not because it's an obligation and not because it's something that we just think we're we're supposed to do, but because we believe it is a core part of our mission as a church of Jesus Christ to befriend and remember and to love the forgotten and the poor among us. Would I like to see our missions and outreach money increase next year? Oh, yeah. I would love. How much fun would that meeting be if we got to decide, okay, now who, who gets more money? There's always room to grow. Larry Stess talks about generosity as a continuum. And on one end, you have sort of the way the world works with this system of of scarcity and fear and greed. And I got to watch out for me and my own. I've got to be self-reliant. It's all up to me. And on the other end, it's that posture of of openness and that posture of of generosity and that, that posture of joy and freedom that we find there when we, when we let go of what, what's been given to us. And probably each of us here find ourselves somewhere in the middle on that continuum, but our goal is to grow more and more and more like Jesus on this side. And so that's our simple task, simple. <laughs> that's our simple task and our goal for this week, to chase after the radical generosity of Christ that we find here and find the joy and abundance and freedom of the kingdom. And join with the work that we're doing because you guys, we're doing it. We're doing it together. And it's an impact in the kingdom of God that we might not even be able to see, but let's keep it up and not grow weary of doing good. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your grace and for your love and for your generosity that we can't even fathom. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to believe your promises that you will provide. Help us to, to have eyes to see the opportunities around us to bless and love and serve our neighbors. Help us to be encouraged that we can do so much more together than we might have been able to do on our own and challenge us to stay committed to promises we made to this community of faith. 
We thank you for the gift that it is to be a part of this family of faith. And we ask that you would continue to grow in us this spirit of generosity, that we may experience the overflow and be found free. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.